Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. Over the years now, I've been hearing about a new pedagogy of land management that's been gaining in popularity, especially in agroforestry circles. The trouble for me has been that until recently, a lot of the resources have been in Portuguese, and so I kept my eye on it from a distance. But syntropic farming is a term first coined by Ernst Goch, a Swiss farmer who immigrated to Brazil in the 1980s and pioneered a new form of farmland management on his land in Bahia. But today, to speak about the principles of syntropic farming and how he's adapted them to the unique Mediterranean climate of the southern region of Spain, known as Andalusia, I spoke with a good friend of mine, Jacob Evans. Now, Jacob has been working for four years now at the Surya Lila Yoga Retreat Center as their permaculture farm manager. Now, in that time, he's helped to establish some impressive agroforestry and food production systems with limited resources in a region that's best known for the rapid desertification and extremes of hot, dry summers and frigid winters. There, the 20-hectare property stands in contrast to the denuded plains around them, and it's beginning to change the hearts and minds of people who think that there's little that can be done to reverse the damage done to the land there. In this interview, we talk about what syntropic farming is and what it represents, And Jacob also walks me through some of the ways that he's applied its principles in his context in Andalusia and how the trials have been working out for the last four years. We also go over some of the specific plants and methods that have been successful for him there and a lot more. Now, I was actually able to meet Jacob a little after this interview in person, actually just the other week when he came up to Barcelona for a trip and we got to hang out a little bit to talk about our projects and the ambitions that we both have here in Spain. We also did a little fermented food and seed swap from our respective gardens, and I'm really looking forward to further collaborating with Jacob since he's already been a great contact for me to get to know this new country and this region by sharing plant lists and advice from his experience. I'm also really looking forward to getting in touch with other innovators and practitioners of syntropic farming, especially here in Spain or in the Mediterranean region. So if any of you out there know of someone who fits that description, please pass their contact to me or share the episode with them. And now with that out of the way, I'll hand things over to Jacob. Hey, Jacob, thanks for making the time to be with me today. Uh, I know you and I have actually been talking a lot in the last couple of weeks, but how's it going over there? It's going really well. We've had a very kind spring. It's still super green, and now the summer dry season is coming in. As you know, we're in a Mediterranean climate, uh, similar to what you're in, maybe a little bit hotter, maybe a little bit colder in the winter. Um, so now I think it won't be raining here until mid-October. But in, in general, I'm doing, doing really good. And it's great to be here on the podcast. Yeah, well, look, so for, <laughs> for the audience and everybody who hasn't been talking to you for a while, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your background and how an Englishman came to be working on a yoga retreat center in Andalusia and managing a syntropic farm? Cool. So I'm Jacob Evans. I'm 29 years old. I left the UK, uh, I'm from England, uh, I left there when I was 19, 
And first I, I spent a few summers working in bars in tourism and I spent a couple of years working on super yachts a world away from syntropic farms and yoga and permaculture. Um, and then about six years ago, I quit that job and I went for a travel around South America to do the woofing and volunteering and, and having experiences. And it came to a time where I needed to come back to, to Europe. And I, as I'd lived in Spain before, uh, I ended up coming back to Spain to manage the farm at a, out, out of a yoga retreat center. So there's the yoga retreat center business, which is called Surya Leela, which is a Sanskrit word, which means playing with the cosmic sun. And there's the not-for-profit uh, permaculture farm, which is called Danyadara, which means blessed earth in Sanskrit, uh, the yogic language. And um, it's good to have the for-profit and the not-for-profit because we can use uh, the leverage both of those businesses give us so we can accept donations, but we can also um, use the for-profit business as well. It's, it's a very nice marriage that the two are interdependent. So I, when I was in South America, yeah, it came to a point where okay, I have to come back to Europe and I need to find somewhere. And I like Spain and I got in touch with the farm here and, and they had been con had a permaculture consultant come and look at their, the land which is 20 hectares or 50 acres and they said you look you need someone there full-time to really manage this land and that person became me so I've been there now four years uh, and it's been great it's been every day is a school day I'm learning things all the time well so tell me a little bit about your day-to-day sort of routines on a farm given that I assume the land was very degraded when you came into the picture because I've seen your little tour of the place the other day that you had uh, live on a Zoom stream, and it looks fantastic, but it's very easy to see what the terrain looks like outside of the landscape as well, and I would imagine that's pretty similar to what you started with. Yeah, oh yeah, we were working in what I would call concrete, concrete soils, very bare. I mean, here, culturally, it's normal to leave bare soil and degrade the soil with the plow and with chemicals. So I started with, 20 hectares and seven hectares of that was semi-abandoned olive grove. There were six hectares that was uh, wheat, sunflower, subsidy, chemical farming. And the rest of it was kind of just uh, semi-abandoned. Um, and since then, four years ago, I've been installing gray water systems. So as it's a yoga retreat center, there's guests most of the year. Um, I mean, now with COVID and things, it's been, it's been very quiet, but normally there's, can be 50, 60 guests there. So gray water showers, gray water washing machines, uh, vegetable garden, and a more bigger reforestation edible landscaping project, um, as well as regenerating the olive grove. So there's a lot of different aspects to the farm. Plus we have some animals and there's a whole, the owner, the director, she's very vegetarian. I would have animals for meat and create a business out of that, similar to Richard Perkins style. Uh, if you're familiar with him, um, but I've got to deal with the context. So the context is yeah, very degraded land and, and the project is more towards fighting desertification because that's a big thing in the region. Although we, we supposed to get 600 millimeters of rain per year, which is the same as London that comes in uh, about over four months. It usually comes October, November and March and April. Um, and when the soil has been plowed and plowed and plowed, it's not going to accept that rain. It's just going to run off and cause huge erosion. So over the last years, I've been, I mean, I planted over 15,000 trees and shrubs and I've got ground cover and animal rotation, basically just ecosystem services happening. And the day to day, we, we run courses as well and we run volunteers. So it's pretty hectic. Actually, right now it's quite chill compared to how it has been. But there's been times where I've had 12 volunteers. And I mean, it's a double-edged sword because you have the free labor, inverted commas, but then you have the, the people that are there just kind of for a holiday and want to be spoon-fed and don't want to learn. So say if I've got 10 volunteers, maybe three or four of them are really good workers and, and, and a few of them are not. And it's, if I've only got four volunteers, maybe two of them are really good workers. So it's, it's, it's always like that. There's always that pattern. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been my experience when we had volunteers on the farm back in Guatemala. It's like the it, it seems like it's a fantastic thing to have all of that free labor. But if it's difficult to manage 
And some people need a whole lot more management than others who, you know, either have some experience, have worked on farms or just, you know, they know how to get on with it. And if you're unable to kind of keep track of the ones who need their hands held, which, you know, no problem. I, it was really great to accept those people. And a lot of them were fantastic. But, you know, you just have to be around for it. And if you don't have the, the manpower, or the resources to look after them, it can actually end up being a huge drain. Totally, totally. And um, and for me, it's been a big learning curve to just focus on the positive and the people that really want to be there and learn yeah. and make the most of them rather than trying to chase after people that are not that bothered. So I've, it's been a big learning curve. And and that's what the owner of the business has liked as well, to have lots of people. Whereas if it was for me, I would have maybe put a limit on it. And I, you know, I do get a lot of creative freedom with the land, but I am limited to the I mean, in the agrarians, the climate of the mind of the owner. So it's a, a mm. huge learning. Um, and then now, now the summer's coming in. We're working sort of seven a.m. till two p.m. Whereas in the winter, we can work ten and ten a.m. until six p.m. without any problem. But now, because it's so hot, it's better to just work early morning and and. Sure. Well, that's where you get the famous siesta aspect of the culture from that region. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I did used to work in the evenings when I lived on site, but now I've got a child and family, so I, I try not to go back to work in the evenings, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so look, so I was originally put in touch with you by a mutual friend of ours, Mark, who also lives in the UK, and I've been in good touch with him as he's working now for a, a no-dig market garden and has shared a lot of cool resources and, and feedback, uh, so shout out to Mark. But so I first got in touch with you because I was looking to get more information from sort of the local climate and plant lists and what works in this area from people who have some experience. And I was really excited when I learned that a lot of what you are implementing on that site has to do with syntropic farming methodologies. And I mean, I've been researching everything from permaculture to regenerative ag and you know, everything in between all the different methods from lasagna gardening and, you know, deep mulch bedding or, you know, there's so many little branded techniques out there. But syntropic farming was one of the ones that I struggled to get a good definition on, partly because so many of the resources are in Portuguese since it kind of was developed and came out of Brazil. But your understanding and the resources that you put me uh or that you gave out to me to, to do some more learning really opened up my eyes to, to what this, I guess, management technique really is. But for those people who aren't familiar with it, can you give us maybe a little overview of your understanding of syntropic farming? So from my understanding of, of syntropic farming is it's, it's constituted by a theoretical and practical setting in which the natural processes are translated into farming interventions in their form, functions, and dynamic. Thus, we can talk about regeneration by use. Since the establishment of highly productive agricultural areas, which tend to be independent of inputs and irrigation, results in the provision of ecosystem services with special emphasis on soil formation, regulation of microclimate, and the favoring of water cycles. That way, agriculture is synced with the re regeneration of ecosystems. So I would, I would go on to describe that as, as we creating abundant systems. There is no recipe with syntropic farming. It's a lot about observation and understanding patterns. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that I was excited about as I started to learn more through you and the resources you sent was that it's a fantastic way of looking, especially at forestry systems, because a lot of the techniques were sort of developed around the tropical forest conditions on the Atlantic uh, rainforest in Brazil. And it's a way of, you know, certainly turning a yield from a farming perspective, but also really accelerating the succession of plants and the growth that they can go through by understanding how different signals from maintenance like pruning or harvesting or uh, amendments to the soil or uh, polyculture plantings send signals to these plants to either go into a vegetative state to grow taller to die back and you can play with these different sequences in order to accelerate the growth and the I guess the restoration of damaged landscapes 
so that it would take much less time than perhaps if even if you were to just leave it to its own devices. Completely. I mean, we can, if by understanding the patterns of nature, whichever climate we're in, obviously if you're in the tropics, it's going to be way quicker. You're going to get trees growing four or five meters in a year and the, the, the pioneer trees. Um, but by understanding the principles, you can apply that in any climate and you can be getting a yield within a couple of months and then another yield in, in another few months and you're getting yields throughout the whole life of the system. And instead of weeding, you're actually harvesting. So you can do syntropic farming with high production annual crops um, to get yields. And, but the idea is you're creating a forest and you plant whole forest when you start the syntropic farming. So little example for here in the, in the Mediterranean, region where i'm doing regeneration this is not for profit but this is direct for kitchen so it's all about context as well um so i'm on degraded soil i might plant succulent plants like yucca like agave uh, some ground cover succulents um all grow really well from cuttings i'll put in some oak seeds some almond seeds some sage some rosemary some artichoke fava beans lettuce and um, so in say three months, I'll be getting a three to four months, I'll be getting fava beans out of that system. And instead of um, letting that fava bean plant completely mature and produce seed, then it will go into entropy if I let it go past its strongest point. So I, I harvest some beans and then I cut that fava bean and I leave the roots in the ground and I uh, put the biomass on the ground. And then, so instead of going and weeding the, the island, or the this this entropic bed, I've I've gone and harvested and fertilized, and that pruning sends messages to the other plants saying you grow, baby, grow. Um, same same with the lettuce. Then maybe the artichoke will be ready at the end of that year or in two years, and that will come back each year for a, for a few years. So so they say there's the the placenta one and the placenta two. The placenta one uh, annual plants that give a quick yield. And in my context with degraded soils and lack of moisture, I choose things like low feeders, as you would say, like lettuce, uh, fava beans, things that I'm not going to have to do much with. Uh, I'm not going to have to give much manure to things like that. And then the end, the artichokes established and the rosemary and thyme and lavenders established. And then in two to three years, I can be harvesting that. For, say we've got sage, I can make smudge sticks with it and sell that to the yoga people out of our shop. Um, all the while the space is being held by the succulent plants with the succulent plants uh, breaking the wind. Uh, they don't need any extra water. They're harvesting dew from the nighttime. Imagine a yucca plant or an agave plant. It's like an upside down umbrella. So that's actually bringing in the dew and, and dropping that dew down while there's a, a, an almond tree from seed and a mulberry tree and an oak tree. And so the almond tree is like the secondary forest. Um, which is around for maybe 50 years with the oak tree being around for maybe 300 to 500 years. And throughout the life of that system, I might add some nitrogen fixing shrubs as well. Throughout the life of that system, things are being pruned. So it's all about space stratification to be harmonized over the time of the life cycle. So the beans that grow really quickly and then they come out and then the, say the rosemary and the artichokes, they're filling that space and then they get pruned and then the, the almonds are coming up and maybe you prune the oak tree back to the ground for 50 to 70 years while those roots are going deeper and deeper and the almonds is having a life of maybe 50 to 70 years. And then when you take the almond out, the oak tree is ready to go and take over. So you've got the, the successional steps of the placenta, the secondary and the climax. And you're always moving forward towards an abundant system. So first you've got the colonization with the annuals and the placenta. Then you've got accumulation with the secondary. And then you've got abundance with the climax. And throughout the life of that system, you're harvesting something. So it's not like, I often get asked around here, why do you plant things so close together by the locals who are totally bewildered? And it's like, that's how nature works. That's how an ecosystem works. Nature doesn't want to be just a, a vegetable garden or an annual crop field or a monocrop of whatever. It's going to fight against it. So if you understand how nature moves forward in succession, you can plant, you can plant with plants that 
are going to give us yields and work together and understand that and, and bring it forward through management and work with nature rather than against it as, as permaculture has said for a long time. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this seems to solve the problem that I have asked on so many interviews in the past. It's like, yeah, we all recognize that getting these longer term, mature perennial systems are, is, is really what's worth working towards in most ecosystems. There's few uh, examples where you're not trying to move towards forest and, you know, respecting savanna land and natural grasslands is among those. But in a lot of cases, you're trying to establish a mature forest as sort of the apex of abundance in wherever you're working. And that's all well and good to say, but if it takes 30 years to get a yield from that, nobody's going to have the upfront capital to work on this. But these these successional models really start right from the beginning with, you know, yielding annual plants that play a role in, uh, I guess, accelerating the maturation and the biodiversity that's going to later turn into the mature system that you're working towards. And in every step along the way, there's something to be taken as a yield that can sustain you financially and also have a lot of returns for the ecosystem that you're building towards. Completely. And you can adapt it to your context. Like, I'm in a very extreme context with water scarce, our wells dry out, um, and, our, and our context is more land regeneration over the long term. But if you wanted short-term yields and you have water and access to manure, between your sort of tree beds, you, I mean, in your tree beds, you still have uh, annuals, but you can leave space between and plant um fast growing vegetables in beds between that eventually are going to get phased out once that canopy closes. Um, but you can, you know, you can be growing your chilies, your aubergines, your lettuce, whatever. And as you grow in that and adding fertility and irrigating that, that's all going towards the future forest. So I kind of see it as money in the current account for now, money in the checking account for now, and you're putting money in your savings account for later. So yeah, that's a good 10, analogy. 15 years time, you're not relying you're not going to be relying on those annual yields you're going to be moving to more of a perennial system that can also have animals in it because you can also space out these tree lines if you're on a larger property you can space them out and run animals through whether that's chickens or cows and or mixed species grazing you can you can create savannas or forests you can choose it to your context and um you're stacking stacking enterprises now, I've seen through the tour that you did just the other week, or actually just a couple of days ago, that you have a mix where you've done rows of forest plantings like you just talked about, but you also have sort of these little island clusters. Can you talk about how these two techniques kind of differ and what they have in common? So, yeah, in certain contexts, it makes sense to do straight lines or, or contour lines or key lines and plan it plan it that way so you can either graze animals in between the lines or use a machine a mower or a tractor to mow in between um or if you've got smaller spaces say a home garden or like us with the yoga center because i'm also doing landscaping for a yoga center but creating an edible landscape uh that has say like the, the owner she planted a few pines five years ago in some really really poor soil um and they were already a bit scattered around. So I used these, took these pines and planted what we call islands around them or donuts. The pines might not even be there later, but right now they're providing a bit of shade and a bit of reference. So um, I would plan accordingly. I would look at my sun angles. Where is the sun coming from? What am I going to plant on the south and west sides to protect from the sun? So in my Mediterranean context, that's going to be succulents like agave that are going to face, the, face that to the west or the south. Then on the north, I'm going to plant more shade-loving species. So this is all around a pine, as an example. Um, on the south, I might plant a mulberry because that's deciduous. On the north, I might put a madroño or strawberry tree, which is evergreen. So the mulberry is going to shade that in the summer. But the madroño fruits in December when the mulberry has lost its leaves. So the, the whole uh, light's going to be coming through. Um, and basically filling any gaps because if if we don't plant things nature will come and put weeds for us which weeds are just plants doing a job they're they're, fill, they're filling the niches so if we if we don't fill that space then nature will come and do it so i find 
if you've got space, uh, fill it up um, and observe what grows around what grows around well. So the islands, the islands are great. I, you always get a mix of the placenta species, the annuals. So you've got your annual placentas that are sort of up to a year, then your placenta two, which is up to 10 years, your secondary forest, which is uh, 20 to 60 years, and then your climax, which you know is for hundreds of years. So you're always planting everything together as one organism, and then you're pruning as, as you need to prune because that's what makes things go so quickly. The, the pruning just speeds everything up. Um, and with these islands, in my context, I will put... Um, straw around them because i'm in a region where they grow a lot of wheat and i can pick up a literally a truck a camion as i say here of, of wheat straw from the year before that's a bit bit damp for 50 euros which is nothing and get you know 400 bales of straw um and so i'll put a donut around of straw which will protect the soil it will give a bit of wind protection a bit of shade and that'll get things going uh, so this is all my context and then i'll in other situations, I'm doing the lines where I'll put, say, on the southwest side here, I'll put rosemary, lavender, sage, oregano, Mediterranean herbs, which are going to protect that soil from the afternoon sun. It's going to create a shade. Um, and they're like placenta two, they're species that are going to be in for maybe 5, 10, 15 years. Then in the middle of this rose, I'll put uh, retama, an artichoke. Retama is like a wispy looking shrub that gets to three meters. It's a native nitrogen fixer. Um, so I put retima and, and wild artichoke, which gives, gives artichokes to eat. And also you can eat the leaves. Um, and then on the back side, the sort of north side of the beds, let's say I put trees and lots of, in our context, almonds, mulberries, oaks, pine nuts, um, strawberry tree, which are all different, different stratas. Cause we're looking to, Oh, carob as well. It's an important one. We're looking to fill up the different stratas. So you've got your, you know, your understory, your medium story, your, your higher trees. So by what Ernst Goetsch, the founder of Syntropic Agriculture, said, or the guy who made it popular, is that to get one tree, productive tree, you want to plant 100 seeds. So I'm either planting loads and loads of seeds or, and lots of lots of transplants. And then thinning out because ultimately the thinning, the pruning is gives more energy to the system. And if you don't occupy that space, then something else will. And, have, and by having the choice, by planting a lot, it gives you the choice to keep the most vigorous, the most species. Um, so I'm very much a fan of getting lots and lots of seeds and, uh, from the local area and plants and planting it very, very densely and seeing what does, what goes well in it. And you always end up with the best specimens that way because ultimately you do loose things as well. See, I love this technique of, like you said, um, really manipulating the placement of the plants so that you utilize their properties and what they're good at, you know, for their, their placement and their, their spacing for the advantage of the whole group. But it really takes a fairly intimate knowledge of the plants that you have access to in order to be able to do this effectively. And you've been doing this for four years, but... You know, I just got here uh, not even a full year ago and haven't quite had access to to the land and the, the forests around here. What do you recommend for someone to, to really start to understand the variety of plants available to them in their area between natives, between, you know, uh, imports? And especially since so much of what you mentioned aren't commonly grown for economic value on any of the farms or cultivated intentionally in a lot of places, where did you start to build this understanding and knowledge? I mean, because I'm on this degraded land as well, I've had to adapt to that. But really, I mean, I had a challenge from kind of the owner of the property, the director, and it was basically get this field planted in a key line pattern. The, the, the big field that I talked about that was with wheat and sunflowers for many years. Um, to plant on a key line pattern, we planted 5,000 trees and it was a case of, we're going to plant 5,000 trees. I'd better choose the ones that I see growing around here without any irrigation because we don't have yeah, the resources. Yeah. So that, that kind of woke me up to, okay, what is growing around here uh, without any water that when you abandon agricultural land or by the side of the roads, it does really well. So that got me in touch with the, with the local plants because 
I mean, the owner, she's, she's got lovely intentions, but she's so, you, she, she had the idea of, you know, an avocado farm when, when we started out. And it's just, I had to explain to her, look, this is not possible. Avocados are not going to grow well in our biome, but there are plenty of things that are going to grow well. So that drove me to find what was going to grow well. And literally looking by the side of the road in abandoned fields, you can see uh, what's growing well. Um, and then you look a bit further, people's gardens and orchards and are they irrigating, are they not? And you soon find out what is the, what plants and species are doing well in your area through observation. So just, just literally walking around and looking at what's growing uh, teaches you a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's been huge for me too. And even before Mark put us in touch, I had been making this sort of large plant database of what I was finding around here. And it's still kind of one of my favorite pastimes is to go on walks around here, especially in the trails and the wooded areas away from, you know, where things are being actively managed and see what's doing well. In fact, I did a Vuelta with my girlfriend and her father the other day. And it's incredible the amount of <laughs> food just growing everywhere around here. And I don't know if it's just because there's been such a constant presence on the Iberian Peninsula for over a thousand years now, or just because so many food crops do so well here natively, like even just the small ciruelas, the plums. Um, and I was like finding those trees all over the place and a lot of things that haven't started to mature yet, but like the Mediterranean is so full of food. It really is. It's so... It's so full of options. Yeah, the Mediterranean has just been so well managed really during the past, you know, go back 200 years. And it was, people were completely self-sufficient because they had to be. I mean, the region where I am, Andalusia, it really only opened up to industrial tractor farming methods 50 years ago. I speak to a, so where I'm based, I'm on the edge of, I'm on a ridge. And there's one side you can see flat industrial farmland, wheat, sunflowers, and melons and the plastic and then the other side we've got a national park and there's green hilltops and things so it's a it's a the, the contrast um i forgot where i was going with that um but yeah just so the abundance of this region and the climate like uh no like you were saying it's very recent that destructive agricultural practices have become common in this area and it's it's tragic because it is, you know, it, as abundant as it is, it's a fairly brittle climate and mismanagement can lead to sort of a cascade of negative environmental impact where now if we were to leave it alone, it wouldn't necessarily grow back, at least not for a long time. It would take a long time for, you know, mature systems to reestablish. And I see, I see this plant called altavaca, which is a shrub which grows in compacted degraded soils, right? And most farmers would see it as a complete weed and they'd be like, what chemicals are I spraying this to get rid of it? But what I noticed with the altavaca, firstly, it grows in the summer. It's green in the summer and it's brown in the winter. Um, and we get, you know, very, very hot summers. But some of the older ones, they start growing wild olives and wild pistachios by, by themselves in the middle of, the, of these altavaca plants. Mm. So the the nature knows. So if we were to come and prune these altavaca plants, then the wild olive would then grow quicker and the wild pistachio would grow quicker or the carob that start growing and they will grow quicker because the birds come and seed things. So you start to get this mosaic and nature prepares itself. But yeah, if you do not prune it and, main, and manage it, it's going to take a lot longer. Whereas if you understand natural succession and you come and prune those plants that are doing the kind of protecting, holding the space like the altavaca, like the retima, um then you can speed things up exponentially whereas if you leave if you if leave a letter a retina plant it'll get three meters tall three meters wide become really woody and it will become like a lockout in succession whereas you prune that then succession comes on very quickly um so nature wants to move forward but it can get stuck especially in these brit in these drier more brittle climates where decomposition doesn't happen for many months yeah. What I've found is here, like by just putting organic matter down year after year for a few years, that it's still coming back. The grass, like I've like to, you know, for the yoga center to make it pretty in, in inverted commas, like we have to keep mowing. 
and it just keeps coming back even now like the neighbors ain't, ain't coming back now it's dry but here because we put down organic matter it just keeps coming back to the grass and even in summer actually it looks green whenever else is brown um, but there's this cultural thing of scrape it off burn it get rid of it and stop things moving forward but once you start moving things forward and understand how nature works it's it does the work for you. You just have to do a few little little interventions. Well, and it invites you to be a participant in the process rather than an antagonist that's always fighting against it moving forward when you realize that, all right, fine, maybe it's not what I had in mind for my personal idea of aesthetics or you know what our culture tells us is beautiful as a way of maintaining this and open up to what I can find you know, for my personal benefit within how this wants to be on its own and learning how to accelerate the natural process and then finding your benefits in it rather than forcing your will onto it and allowing a few things to advance on their own. It really changes the paradigm and and it also really reduces the amount of work you have to do sometimes, depending on how big of a yield you're trying to pull. Totally, totally. And I mean, what I've been realizing the last year is there's, there's so many indirect yields, like from all these things I've been planting, like succulent plants that don't give a direct yield per se, but they're harvesting the rain, the, the moisture from the night, the dew, but also they, right now I'm harvesting tons and tons of snails every day. Now I'm clearing because of the, the dry, the dry herbaceous layer. And then I'm harvesting tons and tons of snails that have come as a result of my planting. And those snails are a really, really high quality food source, which most people wouldn't even think about because culturally in most places you don't eat snails. Here it's common in Spain and France. But I'm, I'm thinking, I just, I've planted these snails because in the areas around where it's plowed and sprayed, there ain't no snails. But here there's tons of them. So yeah, it's yeah. funny, have you tried running ducks through there? I mean, I know you want to eat them for yourself too. And I tried them. I made uh, caldo de, de caracol last, uh, I think it was last autumn when the first rains came back from when I had first moved here. And it's a process, but yeah, they're delicious. And I look forward to trying more recipes. But like, have you thought about running some other animals through there to kind of help with the maintenance of it and kind of keep them at bay? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a broad question because there's some areas that I have to manicure more than others and there's some that are further out. So the more manicured areas, I can just get away with mowing between the rows and, um, and they're not a pest. Like the snails, the slugs might be a little pest in the vegetable garden, but even so, with the diversity we have, say like, I mean, Swiss chard just grows on its own and the slugs seem to prefer that than the vegetables we actually plant. Mm. Um, and then we've got a key line pattern where we planted the 5,000 trees on, on this field that was wheat and sunflowers. And between the key lines, we just graze in the summer. We graze our horses and donkeys. We make a paddock for a week and they graze it and then move them on. Um, and that works really well because the animals have got food the whole summer. They're cycling the nutrient and pooping it back out. And when the rains come, the grass grows again and the manure goes back into the soil. So we don't actually have a snail or a slug problem, to be honest, um, unless it's really, really moist for a prolonged period and they're in the vegetable garden trying to eat the kale. It's the kale something the owner really likes. I'm not bothered too much about <laughs> kale. But slugs and snails, actually, I found that it's, it's quite harmonious. Uh, just because we have so much diversity on the land. And sure. also, I guess having a climate does help. Um, the, the thing about the dry climate is you can grow anything if you have water. And water is one of our biggest challenges because our wells dry out during the summer. But what I've seen with this entropic style of planting, I could get away with, if I plant at the right time, between September and December, and we get a good spring rain, I wouldn't have to water during the summer. Okay, all the things wouldn't grow very much. Um, I could get away, the plants would survive and then go through another cycle and get stronger. And then if I do water, then they grow a bit quicker and get a bit stronger and you get more yields quicker. But with this way of planting so densely and, and mimicking nature, actually, as long as I've got ground cover on the soil, then watering is super minimal. Whereas if I plant just one tree over here, one tree over there, then really you need to water because otherwise it's, it's going to be screwed. So having the diversification of roots 
And another thing about syntropic families, they always have living plants in the soil. Whereas like, when you have living plants in the soil, you're getting those ecosystem services. You're getting capture of moisture from from the air. You're getting carbohydrates put into the soil and uh, protection for other plants as well. Like the rosemary is protecting the oak trees while they're tiny, for example. Um, so really, when you work with nature, the solution has become so, so clear at least in my mind. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And it's, you know, it comes from observation and it comes from patience. But certainly, uh, though four years is not long in the, 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 the you know, the, the bigger vision of a landscape like this, it's, it sounds like it's sufficient to really kind of start to hone that ability to pay more attention and get better at listening rather than this is my agenda. This is what I want out of it. And solutions always present themselves when you're willing to listen. Completely. And I mean, even in this Mediterranean climate where we can have no rain for eight months of the year and 45 Celsius or 110 Fahrenheit in the summer and, and zero Celsius or 30 Fahrenheit in the winter, I'm still seeing trees that have grown three meters in in two to four years um it's not like you can't do things here it's just you have to understand it whereas yeah in the tropics it would be much quicker in a temperate zone probably as well but but there's so much growth potential uh even in these in these mediterranean climates uh which is which is good to see because most people around here are totally like no you can't do that you can't have that green in the summer but they're just so uh, blind by their belief system that when you look a bit past that actually yeah a lot is possible honestly it shocked me too because when you kind of look at the the areas around here in catalonia so like we have a very similar climate but being closer to the mediterranean sea we don't get quite as uh wide a variation of temperatures so it's not quite as hot in the summer and it's not quite as cold in the winter until you start getting further inland and then of course the um the rainfall starts to dissipate a little bit um, I haven't explored around nearly as much as I would like to, but I have been down not far from the areas and like further south on the Costa del Sol um, and seen how it dries out significantly as you start getting down towards your areas. And, you know, I've heard all the stories of how cold and windy it gets on the plains in the center and how much desertification is starting to creep in. It's a big problem for the whole peninsula. Um but with with that said, like when you get away from places that have been so actively managed, like like I was talking about going to to walk around the area here with my girlfriend or her father, you get down into these little paths that like either follow along a river and haven't been plowed or tilled, and it looks like a jungle rainforest. <laughs> I was absolutely blown away by like just how thick the vegetation was. And how abundant the biodiversity was as soon as you just get to a place where people have left it alone and there's a little bit of access to water. Um, and, and you know, stunned to realize, because, you know, I've been doing some research and stuff that pretty much the whole peninsula was like this a couple of hundred years ago. I mean, definitely there's a long period of history and tradition of cultivation of wheat and vineyards and... Uh, what are some of the other major ones around here that have been a lot of, uh, uh, well, this area, there's been a lot of hazelnuts, the castañas, the, um, what are they called? Chestnuts? Avellanas, yeah, for this area. And then the chestnuts, um, and, you know, figs and all of these other things that you sort of associate with this area, but then like the abundance in the forests. um, this is a, this is a very prominent area for the harvesting of cork oak and i went to a museum that's not far from here up towards uh, girona that's the, the cork museum and they still have like all of the old tools and videos of people harvesting this and how it goes in this cycle of 12 years where the bark grows back and and you know and it, it incentivized very careful management of the entire community to take care of these ancient forests and realizing that, you know, it's a big part of the economy and there is incentive to do it. Um, I've just been really geeking out on the the history of land use in this area. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. That must be a big hit as well. The, the, the demolish of the commons, like they used to be more, right. much more 
land. And the, the Dessa is famous, right? The Dessa in Spain and Portugal, they call it Montado, the savanna with the oaks and the pigs and other grazing animals and much more diversity of trees. Um, and then, like I said, yeah, 50 years ago, the tractors came in, at least here in the south, and they just degraded it. I speak to a older guy. He's an artist. He's in his 60s. He said in the year 1967, 68, he left to go to boarding school. And he came back and the landscape had completely changed. He, he described the landscape as before he left uh, Frondoso, which is lush yeah. and full of water. Now you see it and it's like super desertified just from, just from the plow and chemicals, chemical uses. Mm-hmm. But then when you let that, when you let that accumulate organic matter and get some shade, it's amazing how quickly it can respond and change the microclimate and provide abundance but yeah. we've kind of been led down the path of get big or get out and the people have been taken off the land and i mean yeah where i am you don't see other people on the land hardly you see a few tractors and that's it yeah right now they're harvesting the there's these huge combines and um but it doesn't have to be like that i mean we could regenerate these huge wheat fields even you know have say one acre wheat fields yeah sure but have borders around them of, of these centropic farms that can have various yields and attract animals and, and stabilize ecosystems while having still a large scale annual production, but more ecosystem services because those ecosystem services have just been completely abolished, unfortunately. Right. Well, one of the things that blew my mind is like, I think you sent, it was you who sent me the article about how they've changed the olive production. That was actually the other tree that I was going to mention. That's like, the traditional crop from this area is these olive trees that do so well in the dry conditions and put out such amazing fruit with, you know, all, I mean, if you think of super fruits, the olive is right up there. Um, That, you know, even these mature perennial systems can be managed when it's done in this extractive manner and how these massive, massive oil plant or olive oil plantations have been put in completely undercutting the ecosystem services that they have. And it's, what is it, depleting the aquifer of that region some 400 times faster than it's being replenished. And so, you know, there's a couple of years, maybe a decade left in being able to do this. And then what's left, like, you won't even be able to get groundwater out. So who's going to move back there? I mean, you can't even get water to do your washing and your cooking. It's insane. Very short-sighted. But, and, and now there's the intensive olive orchards going in. Like I yeah. manage a ancient olive orchard that's about 150 to 200 years old. The, the trees in it, there are 800 trees. Um, and most of those orchards have been pulled out, unfortunately. They're at like a 10 meter or 12 meter spacing. And now they're putting in these yeah, olive trees that are about half a meter apart, even the stakes, and they, put, and they mound up the soil and they irrigate them with groundwater. And it's just not the same olive oil that would have happened in the past it's this extractive thing as you say whereas the the older trees they have to be more maintained obviously they have to be more pruned uh they need to you need to bring in herds of animals to manage the ground cover you can you can grow things in between but it's yeah you're getting a higher yield but at what cost and yeah and I'm sure you remember, it was really prominent in your area before all of the coronavirus stuff happened. The big news in Spain was all of the protests from the farmers, especially from the southern regions, because of the dropping out of olive oil prices and the fact that they couldn't make a living even with this higher intensity method of production. It's like, well, how could you not? I mean, look, I sympathize definitely with the farming community and they've been trampled for forever. They've always been a marginalized economic community. But at the same time, I mean, there was only one way that that could result when you start to extract all of the resources from the land and create these like hyper intensive production models. Of course, the price is going to drop out because you flooded the market and the cost of production is super high because it's hard to get water. It's hard to get chemicals and it's increasingly more expensive. And so those correlations are going to only result in you know abandonment of rural land and lower and lower prices for those producers yeah i have a really good mentor in the olive production he he uh, manages some large thinkers and he he basically said the the future in olive production is inorganic because you can't make a living out of the conventional and uh, as well as the 
the ecosystem benefits of organic. It's, it's a higher price and you can do it with much less inputs. It's just people have been so blindsided by, by your inputs from the co-op, from the ag salesman, but actually like we're making inputs for olive grove that have nitrogen, have potassium, have phosphorus for five cents a liter. And that liter, that one liter gets diluted to 10 liters and you know, maybe I'll put five liters diluted per tree uh, once a year or twice a year. And we're talking, you know, for a, liter, a few hundred euros and an a, and a IBC tote on the back of a pickup truck with a, with, a, with a 12 volt pump, I can fertilize my whole olive orchard for a couple of hundred euros a year when people are paying thousands of euros a, a hectare, even like a thousand euros a hectare for conventional chemical fertilizers which is bankrupting them it's just it's just that people need to be open to the knowledge like i'm on right. I'm members of some groups on facebook like olive world would be roughly translated and there's people that just put questions like i've got this herbaceous plant growing what herbicide can i put on it's just like and then there's like 50 people that reply that like use this herbicide it's just like you're fighting the wrong battle <laughs> yeah yeah you're fighting battle or at least a losing one there's there's no point at which you win that <laughs> yeah and it's, it's i mean it's a so cycle simple. of degradation degradation and then and higher costs yeah yeah and uh, richard perkins said on the previous interview uh, you did with him it's a lot about pride these old ways of farming this how my father did it so i'm gonna do it like this and it's how we always do it so but I mean, as more and more people are seeing the degradation, and especially young people, there's no incentive for young people to go into that kind of farming. So if young people are going in, they're going in with fresh mind. Whereas they guys, had different business plans too. Totally, the average age of farmers here is, is in the sixties, and they're probably not going to change out of pride, and they've always done it this way. But it's up to the young people now to to take that on. Um, yeah, I mean, the subsidy a... system big problem well because they pay you to, to do losing money things like grow wheat and sunflowers in our region dry farm them and wheat comes in way cheaper from the states and canada on boats than from spain but then they pay you from the subsidy so people have got no incentive to change because the subsidy says okay well i'll pay you x amount for growing this crop even and and sometimes they actually leave the sunflowers in the field because they get the subsidy and it's not even worth harvesting because they would lose money if they harvested it. It's, yeah, I've heard that all so over the, the world. system is... Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a desertification subsidy. that The European Union says, oh, yeah, food security, da, da, da. But actually it's creating it's the opposite. Yeah. more deserts. So. Yeah. Well, and also these methods are really what are behind the flight from rural areas, like I mentioned before, it's like with higher mechanization, there's less jobs and it's driving down prices. So there's no any, there's really no other economy for people to make a living off of in those areas. And so you have giant mechanized fields and no, no more of this culture of small towns that have sort of, you know, vibrant traditions and local identities that quite frankly, this part of the world was so famous for for such a long time. And it's such a shame that that's becoming like a tourism novelty rather than the way of life that, that gave it real meaning and depth. But uh, it, it's like the same, all of these problems, while they have fairly simple solutions, the solutions also come in packs, right? So if you start to manipulate and degrade the landscape, it comes along with cultural degradation and health degradation and whatnot. Whereas if you start to work from the ground up and kind of kickstart these systems, it comes with the rejuvenation of cultural activity, of local economies, of personal health, of community building. And I'm just kind of now really starting to understand and explore through other resources how you can start to kickstart the environmental regeneration through the community side as well and that it doesn't always have to come from you know, the initiation of, of landscape things that can come from other, uh, I guess, spark points around the community as well. Totally. And I mean, I'm seeing, I agree completely with what you say. It's like the desertification of the land, the desertification of the demographic. And one thing we're looking at doing in the future is um, value-added products with our, with our tree crops. So we can sure. grow 
between Real Madroño, almonds, carob, mulberries, olives, pomegranates. There's, there's a long list of things that we're growing and that we're growing at scale. And the idea is when we're getting larger harvests, not to mention the acorns, like acorn flower is amazing, um, is to be able to create value-added products and create industry through that. Because as we're a yoga center, we get a lot of foreigners coming through and we can charge a higher price for our products. So we sell our olive oil through our shop. We can charge 15 euros a liter for it rather than at the market it might be two or three euros a liter, the, the commodity market. So we've got a foot up in that market. But if we can then create brands that add value and people know and trust and respect and that are creating jobs and regenerating land and livelihoods, they can grow and grow and exponentially. And we can be an example also by, for us trying out these things and trying and failing and seeing what works and what genetics work. If people are open, we can share that with them. That's, that's the idea. We do offer farm tours to local people a couple of times a year and we do have good conversations and dinners and, and there are many people that say, yeah, it's a shame that what's happened. And I remember a time when things were different. And so there is, there is a lot of hope out there as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's funny because the interview that we're doing right now and the one that I just did earlier today are going to come out a week apart, but I just got finished uh, today speaking with, Alfonso from the Alvelad project in the Altiplano region, uh, not terribly far from you guys, but with a very, very similar context. And it's also where the Altiplano camp uh, for ecosystem restoration camps is located. And they're working in close uh, cooperation. But he echoed so many of the things that you're saying that, you know, they've, they've started to advance this niche, higher quality product market and value added product market for the farmers that have started to adopt these healthier management techniques. And they're very quickly seeing that, like, you know, if you if you want to couple it with a sustainability model, this is really the only way to make any money off these crops anymore, because doing it at scale with all of those inputs that we mentioned, like you're just running yourself deeper into the ground. But it's really cool to see this sort of echoed from different sites in the region. And, you know, hopefully with further cooperation, this growing sort of micro uh, economy can start to really have an effect and maybe even hold some sway over national policy as it becomes more established and people can really see that uh, this is this is the only way forward for for the health and the resilience and the identity of the Iberian Peninsula. Well, for the whole world, for that matter. I mean, the closer we can get to the consumer, the better. I mean, I know, of, I don't remember the name on top of my head, but there's an organic almond growing cooperative in that region around the Altiplano. Where I think that's the, probably the same to, one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're selling direct and uh, they're getting a good price for their almonds and they're doing a much more regenerative approach. What is it called? Had access yeah. Almendresa? Is that the one you think? Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yep. That's the same, guys. Yep. Oh, good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Because they're doing great work. Hats off to them. Yeah, so I can't remember if I have scheduled this interview to come out before or after Alejandro or Alfonso's. Um, but if anybody's listening to this and wants to hear the other one, either wait a week or go back a week because they're definitely going to come together and uh, it'll sort of reinforce what we're just talking about briefly here. Well, so look, um, we are starting to run out of time a little bit, but it's always fantastic to catch up with you and i know you and i are kind of toying at the idea of doing some work together you might even be looking at uh, a move in the future and further cooperation i'm really excited about and yeah for if, if anybody's interested in finding out more about this how can they get in touch with you and see some of the resources of the site and the work that you've been doing over the last four years Cool. So if you want to get in touch and check out the project, you can check out my personal Instagram, which is at Wizard Permaculture. There's also the Danyadara Instagram, which is D-A-N-Y-A-D-A-R-A. -A -A, and there's a Facebook page as well. Um, Suryalila.com, which is the yoga site. So Suryalila is S-U-R-Y-A-L-I-L-A.com. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can shoot me an email at Jacob Evans, J-A-C-O-B-E-V-A-N-S-881 -E 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 at gmail.com if you're, if you're in the area or interested um, or in Spain. Uh, 
get in touch. So through, through Instagram, through Facebook, through my email, please get in touch if you're interested or are in the area or want some consulting or more information. I'm more than happy. Fantastic. Well, I'll be sure to link to all of those things in the show notes for this episode. And Jacob, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Glad to hear you're doing well. And let's catch up again real soon. I've, uh, I've been building up the plant database with, with some of your help and some more information and plant identification that I've been doing around here. So I'm looking forward to, to sharing that real, real soon. Perfect. Thanks very much, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll be in touch. Thanks. Take care. Bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.